You're turning your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. The children of Israel, you know, spent thousands of years predicting and studying how the Christ would come. And then when the Christ came, guess what happened? They missed it. And last week we were reminding ourselves that really there are two purposes in life, only two, one for the lost, one for the saved. For the lost, you have one goal in life, my friend. What is it? To get saved. There is no other goal, there is no other treasure, and yet human beings from time of old have been duped, blinded, blinkered by all that glitters on this earth. Many people worship other people. They worship money. They worship fame. And they get lost into oblivion like that guy yesterday who got sucked into the earth in America when the ground opened up. They get lost by the world. And Jesus called them weeds. If you're not saved, I hope you can hear me. You have one purpose in this life, and it's not to get rich. It is to find a relationship with God Almighty. If you're saved, you have one purpose. What is it? To spread the gospel and to tell people about Jesus Christ. That's your soul. In God's eyes, we have many things we do, of course. But, but centrally, primarily... It's that you would be a soul winner, someone around whom people are getting saved. Now, folks, I mean, it should go without saying, but it doesn't. If people are not getting saved around me, I'm the one with the problem, not God. It means my light has gone off. It means I'm relying on other people, and I'm not doing the primary function for which I'm on this earth, and God has given me this thing we call time, right? So a couple of weeks ago, we began to look at the subject of evangelism because we're going to open doors for you to experiment, experience the whole area of evangelism in a multitude of ways with the elderly like we have going, with homeless people. We're close to starting a new ministry of outreach at least one night a week in the city. Okay? With door knocking, which I'll come to later, going around a particular area, one area after the other, in, our, in Glasgow and outside of Glasgow. So you will get opportunities to do that, but let's prepare ourselves for that. Amen. Let's start thinking about how we've got this wrong and where we've gone wrong. Let me begin this morning in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. Look what Paul says. But unto each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of the gift that Christ had given. I mean, we could, sp we could stop right there. We could be here for a few weeks. Look at me. Paul says this, basically, if I can paraphrase. We're all different. We're all different. And it doesn't half cheese me off. It probably does you too. Christians have a terrible habit of wanting to make everybody just like them. Don't they? Absolutely. This is the way we worship. This is the way we do it. Wanting to make every... And it's not just churches that are like that. Well, we don't do it. Now, who cares? Paul says, I mean, don't you realize that everybody's different? 
to each has been apportioned, and he goes on in a moment, as we'll see in verse 11, to talk about the different giftings that are among us. But, I mean, just, it would be wrong to just pass by that scripture. Listen to me, guys. Don't try and make everybody like you. I might not want to be like you. <laughs> okay? Stop trying to make people like yourself. You have got passions and drives, and that's what he's getting to. Each of us have things that motivate us, motivational gifts. That's fine. Let people be what God has created them to be. And stop trying to conform everybody into your likeness and let God conform them into the likeness of His Son and all the expressions that that has. Amen. Amen. Look at verse 11. Same passage he's still talking. He's on the same subject. Among us here, some are given to be apostles. Apostles of many forms. Church planting apostles, teaching apostles, all kinds of roles and functions just within that one gift. Some are to be apostles. Some are to be prophets. We looked at this briefly yesterday in the leaders meeting. Prophets. There are many prophets here. I think the prophets suffer the most, you know. Prophets can't live with themselves very often because they're, they find it hard to live in their own skin because they can be very forthright people. And that's, it's a hard life. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's a hard life until you understand yourself and understand how the giftings function, right? So Paul's telling us we're all different. Some are the apostolic types. Some are prophetic types, strong types. Some are evangelistic types. Some are pastors. Some are teachers. And then he goes on to explain why all these things are given. Now, my point is, I read that so that I can read the next verse. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Paul also adds this duty to the list of how we pursue, you know, the giftings in whatever way and form God has given. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse, verse 5. Paul is speaking to Pastor Timothy, and he says to him, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship. What's the next line? Do the work of an evangelist, pastor. Do the work of an evangelist. And it's not just to Timothy. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. That, I mean, you can take that and you can personalize it to yourself. I believe without a shadow of a doubt, every person here, Paul would say to you what? Do the work of an evangelist. Remember, he who wins souls is wise. Do the work of an evangelist, no matter what your gifting is. Don't be led astray by your gifting. Because many people are. We all have duties and roles and passions. We just read that. But there's one, well, there's not just one. There's several passions that should exist in all of us. And one of those, probably top of the list in God's agenda, is that you would have a passion for soul winning. Amen. Amen. And that's what we're going to try and create. Okay? As a congregation, we're going to do it together, do it individually, and do it collectively. You know, when I left school, I was unemployed. I left with no qualifications, nothing. And I didn't know what on earth I was going to do with my life. I failed everything, and I was a bit dejected, actually. And I went, in those days, you couldn't get social welfare. And I went down to the welfare office and in Belfast, the system was this. They offered you three jobs, and you had to take one of them. And if you, you know, if you don't take one of them, you get nothing. You're in trouble. And one of them was in a Protestant area. I was a Catholic. Not a good idea. The other one was in a Protestant area. I'm a Catholic. Not a good idea. And the last one was working with the mentally ill. 
well, I'm a young lad. I don't want to work with the mentally ill. That scares me. But I haven't got a choice. But I've got, you know, I've got no choice. I have to take it. So I said to the guy, I, this is not fair. I don't want to do that. And these other two, he said, there are your three choices. Which one are you going to take? So I said, I'll take the mentally ill then. I loved it. I didn't know until I tried. I, I spent 10 years in it by choice. Once I started working with mentally ill people, I found something in myself that I didn't know was there. And that was a great compassion, a great capacity actually, to cope with the crazy behavior. I ended up on a locked ward, not me, working on a locked ward. I ended up working on a locked ward for five years with extreme behavior where people would say, man, I couldn't even work with those guys for one hour. But you see, I didn't know that was in me, but it was in me. You didn't know sometimes till you try. And in evangelism, over the next few months, it's very close. We're going to start doing stuff pretty soon. You will be given opportunities. And you may say, well, you know, it's just not in me. You don't know that. You don't know that until you try. So please, when we begin to, you know, open doors for you, go through it and, and see what happens. But if I can just pause on the subject of gifting. Every person in this hall who is born again has got a gifting given by God. Amen. You have a central gifting. And this, this thing in you can cause you enormous pain, enormous trauma through your life, because you'll be like Peter when he was crying in the doorway. Peter was crying, in, in my opinion, because he hadn't fulfilled his DNA. There was something enormous inside him, and he knew it. He had it, the imprint of God, you know, and he couldn't get it out. And we're all the same. Every, every one of you has got that little gift of God, whatever it is, and until you identify it and then work to fulfill that, you're going to be, you're going to remain a frustrated person. There is nothing this world can offer you that can take the place of that gift within you, believe me. You will try everything, but you will be dissatisfied. You will. No matter what you achieve, in this life, no matter how many relationships you have, you will remain at the end of it all knowing in your heart of hearts that there was something missing. Amen. It's true. It's absolutely true. And it's the God bit. It's your spiritual DNA bit. And that's connected to your gifting, primarily connected to your gifting. I don't think in pastoring, I don't think there's any area in the lives of people that causes more pain than this, but they don't realize it. They connect the pain to other things. They point at this. They blame that. But actually, they didn't become, they didn't self-actualize, as Maslow put it, right? They didn't become the person that they should be, should have become, because of all the hurdles that life's put at them. When I was in Dublin, um, I remember one lady came up to me one day, and she said to me, Oh, Pastor Mike, you're the best pastor we've ever had. Hallelujah. And it wasn't very long after that another lady came to me and said, you're the worst pastor we have ever had in this place. So if you get a compliment, don't get too carried away because you're probably going to get an insult pretty soon. Now that's all, that's humorous, but it's all the more humorous because I'm not a pastor. G gifts can be confusing. And people can try and slap gifts on you, hold you accountable for things that you're not gifted in. I've had many people, many members in different churches come and try and make me feel guilty for my pastoring abilities, and they get so frustrated because they're looking at me and it's going over my head. 
Because I'm sitting there all the time thinking, actually, I'm not a pastor. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what you expect of me. I can't give it to you, and I'm not going to try because I've been there, done that. It's like if you criticize me for my singing ability. Am I going to get hurt? What do you say no for? How do you know I can't sing? I'm not going to get hurt because I know I can't sing. Are you with me? So a lot of the guilt, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And a lot of the guilt and the, you know, the, the games the devil plays is by trying to accuse us of things that we're not even supposed to do anyway, whilst blinding us to our primary focus and purpose in life as God would see it. Now, let me prefix all that we're going to say today with this one primary perspective that I want you to have in terms of giftings. It's a very important one, so please listen. There's gifting and functioning. Do you remember? Remember, it's a very important point. You know, God has scattered gifts among us. The gifts are like Su Yin. Remember the way Su Yin used to be able to play that piano? Man, that's a gift, right? Freely, easily. That's how you recognize a gift. A gift comes easily to the hand of the person. But you can also function. Both are very important. Pui on the keyboard. Definitely function. She had no natural ability. She had to bonk, 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 but she got there. Amen. And she was a great blessing to us. This is a good example of a gift and someone who's functioning. Very different things. But it's important that you remember this because our topic is evangelism. Let's say Ian here is a gifted five-fold evangelist. And let's say Jim here is not. He's functioning, okay? You know the devil, he'll come up to Ian, who's a gifted evangelist, and he'll whisper in Ian's ear. What do you think he'll say? <laughs> You're not an evangelist, Ian. You're a pastor. And Ian starts to get confused. Well, maybe I, maybe I am. You're not an evangelist. And then the devil will move over to Jim and say, Hey, Jim, you don't need to evangelize. Ian will do it. You with me? And thus... The devil, through giftings, through us not understanding how the giftings function, Satan will disable the evangelist by confusing the gift and disable the church by making them focus on the one who he has just disabled. Are you with me? And you will see that again and again when someone is blatantly gifted in this area or that area, and yet they refuse to recognize it because the devil's been playing games with their mind. Okay? Another thing about functioning, actually, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're a gifted evangelist or not. All that matters is, is that you evangelize. There's many gifted evangelist folks, and they're bone idle. They're lazy. And there's many good-hearted Christians, like our brothers here out on the streets of Glasgow yesterday, when they get to heaven... They'll stand side by side, people who were not gifted, but who functioned diligently and faithfully. And I tell you this, folks, mark my words, when we get to heaven, you will see gifted men stand beside those who functioned. And in many cases, those who functioned will have more fruit, more souls, because they did their job. Amen. So the, you know that functioning person? That can be you. God is, but you can look at Reinhard Bonnke or something and said, well, oh, isn't that great how God blessed him? I don't think that way. You must not think that way. Every door is open for you. The only door is you close in your own mind. 
or listening to the whispers of the devil telling you you're not this, you are this. Listen to God. Listen to God and let Him give you your identity. Gifts are a tragedy, really. I, I, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. And in, in this church, I think of Jeff. Remember Pastor? We call him Pastor Jeff. There you go. He's not a pastor. See how, how wonky we are with this stuff, honestly. Jeff is a, is, is a good example of how to get this wrong. I felt very sorry for Jeff. He, he told me he was a full-time evangelist. I'm fine, no problem. So he came over, if you remember, came to Glasgow, and they started working on the street and formed a team. It was great, great stuff. We'd go down there, but after about two or three months, guess what? Guess what? Nobody's getting saved by their fruit. You'll, be, you'll know them. You'll be able to identify the gift. Okay. I, I mean, I'm just, just making a point. Keep listening. For example, all those three years full-time ministry and evangelism, all those who got saved under Pastor Jeff, please come forward. By their gift, you will know them. By their fruit, you will identify them. So after about six months, I took Jeff. I said, come here a minute. You're not an evangelist, friend. You're not an evangelist. Because the fruit's not there. Do you know what you are? You're a prophet. You're a prophet, and you're going to have to accept this. I didn't have that conversation once with Jeff. I must have had it about ten times. But, and do you know what Jeff would do? Bless him. He would stand in silence, bemused, you know, like Clarence. He would just go into a tailspin. I can't get it. I think, Jeff, you need to listen to me, friend, because I know you a thousand times better than you know yourself. I know you through and through. I know you, I understand you, but you don't understand yourself. You're a prophet. You're out of your gifting. The primary role of a prophet, actually the New Testament prophet, not the old, primary role of the New Testament prophet is in the church. So what are you doing downtown? Your primary function, you're going to get frustrated. And he is, of course, very, very frustrated guy. That's where all that passion comes from because he's frustrated within himself. No disrespect to Jeff, I think he's a great guy. But it, will ta it could take him decades. Could take, that's, that's what I mean about wasted years. It could take Jeff 15, 20 years. But why do we get him back? Jeff, way too early, guys. Way too early. Could be 10, 15 years before a person actually accepts what their gifting is. Remember, I can stand up here and say I'm a great singer and start singing, and you might not join with my opinion. And people can say, I'm this, I'm that. It doesn't work like that. That's why we've got an eldership. That's why we've got a church. Because there's a thing called affirmation. The church has to identify that within you. The church has to clarify that. You're not a one-man band, right? Absolutely. And this is where giftings go wonky. We need the help of our brothers and sisters. We need the church to help us with this and to agree with us in who we are and what we are. And I want to do that amongst you, with you, every one of you. Release you to be and perform the function that God has made you to be. Why not? Amen? So firstly this morning, you understand this, that God has set no barrier before you in terms of fruit. Right? The, the, the world is your oyster. And if we're going to pursue evangelism then, I've just given six simple points here on your notes for the way in which we should commit this morning to behave and to grow. How should we be? How, what way are we going to grow? How's it going to happen? Give me some nuts and bolts. 
Well, number one, I would say to you and to myself, if we intend to be quality evangelists, those who are actually steadfastly seeing people led to Christ, then we ourselves need to what? We need to lead a repentant lifestyle ourselves. If we are going to go on the doors, if we're going to go to the homeless, I've said to you many times, the lost are a very perceptive bunch, very discerning bunch. And if we are going to ask them, let's call it sin in its primary form, which is unbelief. If we're going to ask them to repent from sin in its primary form, then we as mature believers or people who have been believers for a while, we need to be repenting of sin in its secondary forms, which is pride and self-righteousness and, you know, all the stuff that clogs the Christian spirit. And those things are, you can't hide those things. If you are proud, the lost will know it. If you are arrogant, believe me, they will know it. So if we're going to go out, and I hope we will, and all of you will, but I warn you this, as you herald to the city and proclaim to the city to repent, you yourself had better have a top-level, ongoing lifestyle of commitment. Amen. Because that will change and mean more to the lost than anything. My sheep, hear my voice. I tell you, they can hear pride in your voice, and they can hear humility in your voice. I repeat, the lost are very, very, very discerning, very quick to spot hypocrisy. And I mean, in my opinion, having worked on the street for years, I find the crowds actually reasonable, quite reasonable. <laughs> if we're reasonable, if we've got our feet on the ground, you know, they, they will meet with us. It's, it's all about our approach. And Jesus obviously got that piece right, didn't he? Sinners flocked to Jesus because within him, people sensed he believes in me. He's got hope for me. He wants me to be saved. But if we get it wrong and we end up, you know, shouting at the crowds or whatever, they will reject. Of course they will, because they'll read that as arrogance and pride. It might just be frustration, but they will read it as arrogance and pride, and they will reject the, 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 the messenger, not the message, the messenger. And so sin in its primary form is unbelief. And the streets yesterday were full of people in unbelief. But I myself, to speak to these people and you, I need to repent of my pride my self-righteousness, my arrogance, and whatever other sin is in my life in an ongoing lifestyle. Secondly, to be a good evangelist, I need really of the other giftings, I need to take a touch of the prophet and develop a touch of the prophet within myself. And what I mean by that, out of the five giftings, pastor, prophet, apostle, teacher, evangelist, out of the five giftings, I really think the evangelist and the prophet should spend a bit of time together because they can benefit, you know, greatly from one another. They both have different, completely different motivations. The prophetic types here, we were talking to Estella yesterday. Most of you know Estella. Estella's a prophetic type, a, a strong type. Eileen here, Eileen's prophetic type, right? And that is not, it's not the easiest of dispositions to have. It's a difficult one to have. They have a very... Prophets, the reason why Eileen's so strong in worship, right? Because many worship leaders are prophets. Many. 
Why? Because prophets feel for God. They care about God. They care about how God feels. Evangelists, the opposite. What does evangelists care about? People. People. They're opposites. And because evangelists, you see, if you read your Old Testament particularly, I know it's a different type of prophet, but if you read the Old Testament, what did Nehemiah do when the people sinned? Pulled their hair out. Eileen, don't pull anybody's hair out. <laughs> he pulled their hair out and he punched them. That's what he said. He said, I went into the city and I pulled their hair and I punched them. Yeah, this, this is a man who's angry. He's a prophet and he's angry at how people are treating his God. You understand? Some of you are like that. Some of you have, have pent up frustrations about how God's treated. That's a prophet. That's a prophetic nature. The evangelist is the opposite. Gentle towards people, loves the people. But there's problems there too because the evangelist can weaken his gospel. Because of that, because of an over-concern, they can water the gospel down and that's no good either. And that's where the prophet can help the evangelist. Do you follow me? Because the prophet will never water down the word of God. Never. But the evangelist might. Might try to make it easier to come to know God, etc., etc. And so these two really, I think to be a good evangelist, spend some time with the prophetic types. To be a good prophet and not go around punching people. <laughs> spend some time in evangelism and you'll find that it will not do you any harm. Quite the reverse. It will complement the giftings within you. It will help you grow to a more holistic minister. A good evangelist will be enthusiastic, but by that I don't mean force. I thank God that I don't see as much force around. There was a lot of that in Ireland. Remember, Jeanette? In some of the evangelism that we, when we first went to Ireland, there was a lot of force. Nothing wrong with being enthusiastic. But there was a lot of people trying to be dragging people into the kingdom. You know what I mean? Pulling them, forcing them, pray this prayer. Go on, pray the prayer. Not good. Enthusiasm's great. Enthusiasm is an excitement for what might be. Enthusiasm's got hope, right? But enthusiasm's got faith as well, if you think about it, because it'll believe in God. Enthusiasm trusts God, believes in God, has faith in God. But forcing, it's got none of those things. Force is not focused on God, is it? When we're trying to force people to be saved, God's not in that equation. We think we have to do it ourselves. That's not good, right? And there was, I, I don't see it here in Glasgow, I'm very pleased with that, but there was a time that, I mean, the, the modus operandi was, was far too hard and heavy for my liking, okay? Fourthly, a good evangelist will be hardworking. We're going to give each of the cells, the cell leaders, a map of Stenhouse Muir, uh, the, the whole Falkirk area. And over the next few months, each cell group is going to be asked to go up and knock some doors, okay? Ian and Brenda will coordinate that. But we're going to put a map in each group, in each cell group, and we're going to ask you to pray, pray over that map, pray over that street, and then Ian will use the minibus, we'll gather together at the church, one week one cell, one week the next cell, and we will begin to knock the doors around the Falkirk area with a view to planting a church there in and around Stenhouse Muir. Great, amen. amen. Absolutely fantastic. I was telling the guys yesterday, Years ago, a team came from America to Ireland. They were going to plant a church in a small town outside Dublin called Navin. 
uh, and they arrived. One of them was under 60, but the other five were all over 60. They were mostly retired couples, three couples, three husbands and wife team. And we rented a house, and they were going to start a church plant. So we did the training with them. And as part of the training, I had the statistics. You remember the famous statistics? 77% get saved through personal relationships. And I think it was 1% or 2% get saved through door knocking. So I kind of dismissed the door knocking route. But I give full credit to those couples. Because you know what? They weren't gifted. None of them were. It was one of the most ungifted bunches I've ever seen, actually. I hope they never hear this message. <laughs> they really were. They didn't have anything amongst them. No preachers, no teachers, no worship leader, no leaders, no, no nothing. But a year later, when they stood up, they got about 70 people in that church, you know, today, and they succeeded. And the leader stood up, and, he, and I'll never forget what he said. He talked to me. He kind of rebuked me. He said, you told us with your statistics that it wasn't going to work through door knocking. But we didn't have anything. So that's what we did. And we just kept on doing it. And you know what? Guess what God used? Door knocking. You give God, this is the functioning, right? They gave God what they had. And that's exactly what God used. Isn't that good? So we will conquer Falkirk and bring the gospel into that place and begin to develop satellites around Glasgow, not just there, but in your area too, right? So work with us and, and test the waters and find yourself as you do that. So a good evangelist will be hard working. That means you've got to, we're going to go out maybe Saturdays or some other days if it's more suitable for your cell group. A good evangelist, number five, is going to be prayerful. Now, how many times have we talked about this? Prayer is important for the Christian life, but I warn you folks, if you're going to get involved in evangelism, I warn you, you better pray. You better pray like you've never prayed before because there's a big nasty devil out there and he considers the lost his property. And if you go into his turf and you start trying to take his treasures, you're going to find that you're going to get hit like, what's his name in the book of Acts? Trying to overstep your mark without proper preparation. We ran a drop-in center in Ireland, which was a very busy place, full of drug addicts, mostly. And we, I was going away for six months. And I put two, two very evangelistic ladies in charge of that place. And there was a handover period, like a couple of months handover period. And Jeanette and I would be in that building crying out to God, praying. We had all-nighters every Friday, actually, for a year at one point in that place just to keep the devil off our back. But I noticed as the time got nearer for me to go away, these gals are not praying. They're turning up five minutes before we opened the doors, and several times I said, you know what, girls? I don't think you know what you're doing. Oh, I see. You think you're just going to walk in here, open the door. Listen, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. It's not that easy. You try to get involved in evangelism and you're going to get hit. So you think you've got to just go and evangelize, do you? Soon as you stick your head above the parapet, the devil, oh, you think you're going to come in and down? And you need to be praying and covering yourself in prayer, covering all you do in prayer. 
And some of you will go down onto the streets for two or three months. Next thing, life is in a turmoil. Can't come, Gordon. Can't come, John, because of this and that. And you don't connect the two. You don't connect the two. Well, you need to connect the two. Because as soon as you start down that road, you're going to get hit. Gahiso, please. I have to stop taking my belt off for examples all the time. <laughs> Haven't had an accident yet. Let's say Gahiso is the devil. What, oh, you got last time? Okay. Fair, 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 fair. Where's the just? <laughs> Let's say he's the devil, okay? So here I am. I'm going to go into evangelism with one hand. I need to go and give out those leaflets. I need to go and shake the hand of the lost. What do I need to do with the other one? Pray. I need to be praying, right? You need both hands. I've got a devil who's after me. Look, if all I do is give out leaflets or, or preach on the street, I'm not binding anybody. I can't bind you like that. I can't evangelize like this. I've got, what's he going to do? He's going to punch me. Don't punch me. It's just an example. Just a simple example. He's going to thump me. And that's what happens. People go and they only do half their ministry. Right? It's not that simple. I need to pray and go. Pray and go. And as I do that, he can't hurt me. Amen. Not, not rocket science. Thank you. Not rocket science. But if you fail to do it, you're going to get hit like thousands of people before you. Who was it? I think it was Kenneth Copeland, and these statistics are several years old, so forgive me, I think they're about 10 years old, but I saw Kenneth Copeland once on the television, and he was saying this. It was an awesome point. He said, pleading with the people to pray for evangelists, he said this, audience, how many pastors are in prison across America today? And at that point, he said, you know, pause, none. Praise the Lord. How many prophets? None. How many apostles? None. How many teachers? None. And then he said, how many evangelists? And the answer was 18. Wow. In other words, you put your head above the parapet. You say you're making a commitment to evangelism. From that moment, you become a target. Were those men bad men? No. Men, foolish. Foolish, maybe, who endeavored just thinking it's all simple and easy. But prayer is at least, if not more, fully more, 50% of your ministry, you know. They say Jesus spent 60% of his time in prayer, right? It's at least 50% of your ministry. And if you're not going to do that, stay away from it. Stay away from it, because it's not going to do you any good, and in the end, it won't do your testimony any good, which is no good for evangelism. Do you follow? So just stay away from it, unless you're ready to make a proper commitment. And the last one there, a good evangelist will know how to lead people to Christ. Sounds so easy, but it is not easy. It is a very complicated system, really. It shouldn't be. Myself and Jeanette were in the church in the early hours of the morning, and we were praying, crying out to God, Please, God, help us make complicated things simple. Because it can be, you know, Paul says some things are hard to understand, and certainly when it comes to salvation, it can be difficult and confusing. And I pray that we crack that nut this morning. Amen. But people need to know how to lead people to Christ. You have heard me mention this statistic many times. Billy Graham had his famous crusades around the world where mass crowds responded to the gospel. Remember? 
through the 40s and 50s and 60s. And the, the altar would be packed with people all standing and praying the sinner's prayer. And in Billy Graham's autobiography, years later, he tells the story, the real story. And with great regret, he says, in his, by his estimation, 45 out of every 50 people can't be found in any church even though they responded and came forward. And I don't blame Billy Graham for that, by the way. That's not my point at all. He was just caught in a moment in time where he said, well, what was I supposed to do? I had all these people. They're all going to leave. We didn't know how to handle it. And so we tried this sinner's prayer thing, which actually was not around before that, not in the same form. It kind of became, you know, coinage in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s because we started to have these huge crusades, you know? So it's not, as, it's not a tried and tested thing, sadly, because in this era, through these previous last few decades, we've started to iron out the problems because of people like Billy Graham. You see, evangelists can make it easy. Some of the people in that crowd, they were sitting in their seat. And it's not what he said, but they heard this. It's not what Billy Graham said. If you want to get saved, come forward. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> do, 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 do. If you want to get saved, repeat after me. Oh, that's easy. Dear Lord Jesus, dear Lord Jesus. I repent of my sin. I repent of my sin. Okay. And now you, I'm born again. Whoa, that's great. And just walk straight out the door. Well, how crazy is that? It's madness, isn't it? It's madness. What, what happened was, in the book of Acts, Peter gave the crowd two commandments if they wanted to be saved. Remember? What shall we do to be saved? And repent and be baptized. He gave them two commandments. Repent ye and be baptized for the salvation of your souls. Now listen, folks. Somehow we changed that to come forward. Well, coming forward and repeating a prayer is not necessarily repentance. Now, a person's heart might be sincere. Amen. No problem if they're sincere. But coming forward in any church, and then even if you continue to attend that church for the rest of your life, you're, now you're just a churchgoer. But you're still lost. I went to church for 26 years. I was involved in the Our whole family went to church. We were churchgoers. Going to hell. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian, right? Amen. What's the saying? Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. And going a horse burger. And going to church, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. And yet we can deceive people. Listen to me. We can deceive people and give them assurances that God has not given them. Giving them a slap on the back, everything's okay. Well, everything's not okay. Unless a man is born again. Who said that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who's the one you're going to face, friend. The one the lost will face. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will never see heaven, never enter heaven. So be careful about the gospel we preach. All right? You be careful of the way you lead people to Christ and false assurances that will see many in hell. Nice and blunt, but it's true. 
we need to get back to the original gospel, which is a gospel of repentance. Repentance is a military word, actually. It's an action word. It was the word that the the centurions, a hundred men, boom, boom, walking down the street. It's hard to stop that crowd. And that's that's the word Jesus took and used because they would understand it from the Romans. And Jesus would get up in a high place and shout the same word the centurion used to turn that army. The centurion would stand up and shout, Repent! And the army had this instruction. Three steps forward. One, two, three. Turn! You turn in the opposite direction. Everything changes. That's repentance. Do you remember when you turn to the Lord? I tell you, some people scare me. (laughs) You tell me you meet Jesus and you can't remember, it's kind of scary, you know. Repentance is a huge thing. A living thing and you need to be able to say that I have repented I have I mean Jesus made no bones about asking people what they have repented from okay listen to me if you have not repented you're not saved if you have never repented from your sins the Bible says uh, without repentance there is no forgiveness of sins and I can remember when I first started become convicted with the gospel I was sitting in an apartment then in Cardiff and I suddenly realized oh my god because I met my first born-again believer someone who was alive someone who had the Spirit of God in him and it scared the living daylights out of me after 26 years in a church And suddenly I looked at my history and I looked at this man and I thought, they're all dead! Thank God I've met someone who's alive and he gave me a Bible and I said, who are you? And I remember him saying to me, I am born again. And something inside you just goes, dong, that's the truth, doesn't it? You hear those words and you're not there yet. But those words began my repentance and it didn't happen in an instant didn't happen for me in a split second though for some people that's the case but for most people that's not the case for me I had to go back to my apartment and I had to start thinking about all the things that were in my life my girlfriend had to go I was a massive drinker and nightclubs were my life and I had to get out and extract. It took time. Extract. In fact, it took me about three and a half weeks and I was born again myself, sitting in a Catholic church all on my own. I used to open the door about seven, ten past seven. And for those three weeks, I tell you, the first customer in that place was me, the most lost and sad and sorry, wretched, God, thank you, Jesus, person on earth. I'd be standing at the door because I didn't know where else to go. Stand outside the church waiting for the, hear the big door open and wait for the guy to go away and i just go in and sit down and say, God, I didn't know. I didn't know. And my parents, someone needs to tell people. Going to church doesn't make me, I didn't know. I never repented, Lord. But it's worse than that, God. I still don't want to. I don't want to. (laughs) Sorry about this, Lord. Please forgive me. I don't want to repent because I love sin. I don't love you at all. 
I should. The only reason I'm here is because I'm very frightened of hell, because I know someone who's saved now. See you tomorrow, Lord. I'm back the next night. God, hi, I'm back again. Still don't want to repent of my sins, though. I enjoy the nightclubs, God. Don't love you at all. See you tomorrow night, Lord. And slowly I began to get rid of the sins in my life. And it was about two and a half weeks, and one night I was sitting there on my own, and I remember that night so clearly. And I, I, I said to God, you don't, salvation belongs to God. You don't need to save me. I don't deserve to be saved. But I will serve you all my life anyway, whether you save me or not. And for the first time, I saw the cross. Having lived in a Catholic house, our house was covered in statues and crucifixes and everything else under the sun. Having lived with that all my life, for the first time, I see he died on the cross for me. He took my sin. I didn't realize it. How could you miss? How could I be so blind? I give him my sin. He gives me his life. And suddenly, boom, you're born again. An unlikely convert, if you like. The gospel is not cheap. It's often not quick. Look at the facts on your sheet, the second half of your notes. The facts of the situation are God can and indeed does save people in an instant, as it were when they come forward and they pray the sinner's prayer. But fact two is that most people are not saved that way. The fact of the matter is, for most people, the vast majority, salvation comes over a, a period of time. Could be years, could be months, could be decades. We had a couple in Cardiff. When we were there, this couple had been in the church for 40 years. 40 years! And they still weren't born again. The most faithful members. And the guy was an awesome painter. His name was George Dolman. He was so brilliant at painting. And his testimony, he was in his 80s when we met him. They're dead now. But I remember his testimony as an old man coming up and said, 40 years! Church going! And I didn't know him. It wasn't personal. It didn't change our lives at all. We were just religious like Muslims or Buddhists or anything else. It's just another practice that makes people feel better. But if you, there's no exceptions here, friends. You're not an exception. There aren't any. If you have never repented from the sins in your life, you're not saved. If you've never turned and received that, he says baptism is more to it. Remember the four points. Repent, believe, be baptized, and receive. The four points of the gospel. Won't deal with it this morning. But salvation in Scripture is very clear. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 15. Romans chapter 9 and verse 15. This is a bit of a wake-up call. Ah, that's not my scriptures here. Romans chapter 9 verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion the Jews here are arguing with Paul about the preaching of the gospel. Paul's just explained to them, 
all of you here this morning, you've heard the gospel. Maybe some of you here I know I don't know very well for the first time. And for the Jews here, Paul's preaching the gospel loud and clear. And some of them say, hey, you know what? We'd be better off if we never heard this. Because salvation belongs to... Salvation belongs to God. And there, you know, maybe you missed this point. You see, the, 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 the congregation here are saying, what if I don't get saved? What if I don't get saved? In all my years, I've only met one man who I was ministering to consecutively who I couldn't see get saved. He was a caretaker. His name was Tony. And I used to pass him by and witness to him week after week after week. And I saw him change his life and do, but still he wasn't saved. Something was wrong. It was like this, how come God saved you and not saved me? And I would try to get the gospel into him and he was doing things. And I remember, the, I don't know it was the last time I saw him, but one of the last times that I saw him, I was walking away and he said, Mike, you're the luckiest guy in the world. He said that because he wasn't saved. And he was trying, you see, my point, listen to me. Salvation belongs to God. It's not yours. I can't give it to you. Seika Hiso wasn't saved and he's my son. I can't give it to you. I, I wish I could. I can't save you. And if you think that's bad, it gets worse. You can't save yourself. The Bible says salvation belongs to God. Not to you. Not to you. And Billy Graham learned this lesson very hard in his crusades. When the people were coming forward and they, were, they, think, they, can, they think it belongs to them. But Jesus said this one day, I did not, you, you did not choose me. I chose you. And that's my point when I sat in that Catholic church that day. You don't need to save me. I understand this. You don't need to save me. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't yet know if I will be. But I'll do everything on my part. I will repent. And I will cry out for your mercy, God. Don't play games with God. You're not in charge. Salvation belongs to God. It does not belong to you. And if you come forward in any altar call to give your life to Christ, you're not the hero. He is. There's another problem. You see people flock forward and they think they're up for a round of applause. Well, you're not. Christ is the hero. And that needs, above all moments in your life, that needs to be the moment that you realize that. And it hits home in your heart that God's almighty grace has reached you at last. For your part, all you can do is repent from every sin and hope and wait and cry out to God that you get saved and that you too are born again. That's what you should do. And I made it my ambition once I met that guy who was born again. I made it my ambition that there will be no blockage in my life between him and me. Everything will go. Nothing will be as far as my part. I will remove everything I know to be wrong. That's why I've got this little conscience in here. I'm going to do everything I can, but that still doesn't save me. Still doesn't save me. I'm still dependent on an act of mercy. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. For he says to Moses, You're not God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
and I, you're not God. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And we find ourselves here in the church this morning amongst brothers and sisters on whom God has had mercy. Isn't that great? Other people who the blood of Christ on that cross, when he died, he saw you. Chosen, treasured possession. Many words Scripture uses of we who are saved. How brilliant is that? How awesome is that? We definitely can't keep this to ourselves. Amen. Let me get another scripture. John chapter 1, verse 11. Look at this. John's gospel, chapter 1 and verse 11. Talking about the way salvation comes to us. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look at verse 13. Children born not of natural descent. Everybody look up. You can't become a Christian because your parents were Christian. What does he say? We're talking about people who are born again. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision. You can't get saved because you want to, because salvation belongs to... God. So, John is very clear. You're not a Christian because your parents are Christians. It doesn't work that way. Children born not not of natural descent, nor of a human decision. In the book of Romans, it says that salvation does not come by desire or effort. You can desire to be saved with all your heart. doesn't necessarily mean you'll be saved, right? Remember Esau when he sold his birthright. Cried his heart out. Didn't get the birthright back, remember? Remember David, when his child was dying, pleaded with God. The child still died. Okay? Salvation comes one way, not because your parents are Christians, not born of natural descent, nor because of a human decision, or born of a husband's will. In other words, my parents are Christians, therefore I'm a Christian. No. And now I have children. They'll be Christians. No. Or born of a husband's will. What's the last part? But born of God, born again. And that's the gospel, folks. There's only one you know, way for us to, to get this and get the whole truth to people. The tr- it's the gospel that will set people free. The gospel is the power of God onto salvation. But we need to tell it like it is, right? Give it truthfully, holistically, without leaving anything out. Everybody look up. I was 26 years old before one person came to me and told me the gospel. Having been in church all my life, most of the ministers in my church would not have been saved. They were religious people. History's full of them. The world's full of them. Amen. They're everywhere, well-intentioned, but people who did not actually know God. And when I got saved in that church, I remember my first thing I did was I made an appointment to see the priest because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know anybody as such. The guy, they sacked him. The guy who led me to the Lord, they threw him out. And he was gone. So I went in and I was, you know, full of the Spirit. I just found God. And I made an appointment to see the priest. And I go in and I hey, Father, guess what? And I looked at him. I, 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 I talked to him. But as I was looking at him, I suddenly realized, oh, Oh my God, you don't know God. You're not actually born again, are you? 
And it's a, it's a sad walk because I, that's my tradition. I saw there was another guy there, actually, an older man. And I felt he did know God. It was an, an older priest. And I made another appointment to see him. And I sat with him. And I felt he was saved in his own way. And we won't get into that. But there are many, many out there who are confused, misled in all these things. When you die, you, like everybody else, will stand alone before one person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will approach him, and you will give account for your life. This message will never change. Sorry about that. There's one gospel, and you need to repent of your sin. Let me conclude with a little list at the very bottom of your notes this morning. The process of salvation has four distinct steps. You remember these. these memorize them. Conviction, say them with me. Repentance, salvation, and assurance. Step one is conviction. Step two is repentance. Step three is salvation. Step four is assurance. Now, you can get all these four in one, in one prayer. I've got no problem with that, but it's not common. Now, everybody look up. Everybody listen. This is the problem. People come to church, and they get what? What happens? Number one, conviction. They sit in church on a day like this, and they're, sit, and they're convicted. Well, what happens if we give an altar call, and someone comes forward, and you pray over them? Oh, you're born again now. Um, <clears throat> have they even repented? Have they have you even given people time? It took me weeks. I don't know about you. I need time to repent. Jesus would say to people, go and go. Remember? You take up the mat and go and do this and go and do it. In other words, there's stuff to do. Stuff to do. And as they're on the way, things are happening in them. It's an action word. Do you know what we do? People get convicted and we jump the queue and we bring them to assurance. That's what we try to do. We try to play God and tell everybody they're born again, and this, that, and the other. It's, it's terrible. It is not right. We've had a play. Have you seen Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames? Anybody seen that? It's a very famous play used all over the world. It's, it's a big show. You, they take your church over for about two or three months, and they build a huge set. And one side's heaven, and the other side's hell. It's a professional production. It's pretty awesome, actually. And we heard so many good reports about it, and we booked them for our church in... Dublin. And it's a big thing. Half the church was involved, and they're all characters in the play, you know. But they wrote to us, and they said, the evangelist on that night will be one of our people. That was a big mistake. <laughs> I trusted them. I heard so much about them, I trusted them. We had the church packed with lost people, and the play was great. Our members did everything right. And then this idiot, their guy was an idiot, I'm furious about it to this day. The play was all over. It was very convicting. So everybody now wants to get saved. And this guy, he gets up, walks up to the front, and he says, okay, come forward. Come forward, come forward, hurry up. Come, come on, come on, come on, come on. And people look around, what did he say? He said, come forward. We have to go down. Okay. I, okay, so they all come forward. I'll stand. Now, close your eyes. Close my eyes. Everybody close my eyes for? Close your eyes, everybody. Close your eyes. Now, repeat this. Dear Lord Jesus. What? He said, repeat this, dear Lord Jesus. So they're all going, dear Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. What? I repent of my sin. I repent of my sin. Now go back to your seat. Now you're all born again. Uh, 
as he said, now fill out your form, fill out the form. I thought, oh God. So at the end of the meeting, I was ready to punch him, you know. I'm not a prophet. I, one of the members came up. Her name was Moira Flaherty. It wasn't Irish. <laughs> and she's got all the forms with the names. And she's dancing down there. Pastor Mike, look! It was something like 60 or something like that. Commitments. All born again! I said, Moira, give me those. They're not born again. They don't even know what they were doing. There was no gospel preached. He didn't say anything. He, they didn't know what they were doing. She left the church. She never, I don't think she ever, ever came back to us. She was so disgusted, so confused was her understanding of what salvation is or how we appropriate salvation, if you like, so confused that she left and was furious at me. Well, listen, Moira, you are totally wrong. What do these people need to do? Repent. They need to repent. The way of salvation has never changed. John the Baptist, Jesus, and Peter. In each case, the Bible records their first words. What was the first word in all three cases? Repent, repent, repent. Nice and simple. So we can't, you know, location, location, location. You can't get it wrong. So every person here, I plead with you this morning to take yourself back to the original gospel, to the same Jesus that you will face when you die, and you need to play by his rules. Amen? Amen? Not by the rules of any church on this planet. Not by the rules of my parents, in my case. But I will obey the rule of God. And when I got saved, I got baptized. I had a very excellent relationship with my mom and dad, as you know. And one of the hardest occasions of my life was when I went home and I sat down and I told my parents I've just been baptized. I sat there with my parents and my father went out to make a cup of tea or something. And my mother turned to me and she said, you are a disgrace. You have betrayed us. You have betrayed the family. You have betrayed your grandmother, your father. You're a disgrace. And she said this, I will tell no... Now, she wasn't an aunt. She's a lovely person. She said, I will tell no one about you ever. No one will know what you've done. And I said this to my mother. I said, Mom, I've been a good son. And one day you said I was the most helpful to you and Dad. You said that. Remember? I've been a good son to you. But I tell you this, Mom, on this issue, I will never be loyal to you. Because this is heaven and hell. This is eternity. And you are wrong. What you have believed is wrong. It's all wrong. And I have found the light. And I am born again. And I will follow God with all due respect. Mom, I will not be obeying you on this. And it was years before her pride descended. You see, my mother had what? A false loyalty. A loyalty to the tradition of her family line. A loyalty, but it wasn't a loyalty to God. I don't have those hang-ups. I've got no problem switching loyalty when, I'm, when the loyalty's wrong. Amen. And the loyalty was wrong. And I was able to impact my family by standing for what is right. Right? Folks, it's not a joke. The gospel's not a joke. It's as serious as it gets. And we're going to 
preach the gospel. We're going to share the gospel by knocking doors, by working with the homeless, and many other things. But here this morning, many of you are not saved. Many of you are very faithful, and I thank you for that, and you're a great help to this church, and I thank you for that. But many of you have actually never repented. And coming to church makes you feel good. And other people will slap you on the back and say, everything's okay. Well, it's not okay. It's not okay. If you're not born again, it's not okay. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, it's not okay. And yet most of the people who consider themselves so smart out there, they can be 40 years old, 50 years old, and you know what? They don't even know what born again means. They haven't even found that. Like I said at the beginning, they've been distracted. They've been waylaid by life and all that glitters in the world. So this morning, I challenge you to give your life to the only person who can save it. I can't guarantee that you'll be saved. Neither can Paul. But what we can do is repent and look up and say, God, please save me. Please, please save me. Forgive me for my sins. Everything that I, you show me is wrong, I'm going to turn from it. I promise, I'm going to turn. Give me the strength, Jesus. Put your spirit in me. And I'll turn from my sins. And as I turn, I beg you, Lord, for your mercy. You said you would have compassion on those on whom you will have compassion. Count me in that number this morning. We're going to have communion. You know, communion is for those who are born again. It's for those who are saved. And in many churches, they will go around and they'll say, now, if you're lost, don't touch it. Anybody lost here, don't touch the communion. Okay, no problem. But you know what? When you take that attitude to communion, you miss, you miss the whole point. Because this was always supposed to be evangelistic. Okay? And the point of communion, really, this morning among us, if you're born again, the body of Christ's already broken. You understand it. The blood of Christ already spilt, remember? And you're born again. So you already understand this. But you know what this is? In the East, and they understood communion much better than we do, every peace covenant, when peace was struck between nations, how did they confirm the peace? With a meal. Peace meal. They would sit across a table and they would eat. And when Jesus broke the bread and shared the wine, this was his peace between God and man. That's what the meal was. So if you're saved here this morning, Scripture says you can partake of the bread and the wine. I'm not finished. Listen. If you're not saved, that's why it's here. So that you, sitting right there in your seat, say, you know what, Jesus? I repent of all my sin. Let your blood cover me. Forgive me, Lord. And then you go right ahead and take the bread and take the wine 
And we all say to you, welcome. Welcome to the kingdom of our God. Can I ask the ushers to give out the bread and wine? And I'm going to ask you just bow your heads one moment. Hallelujah. Lord, I pray for the outpouring of salvation in this place. For those of us who know you, we thank you for the awesome privilege that it is to know Jesus Christ, to be part of the great sacrifice of the cross. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything. And for those who are not saved, go ahead, guys. For those who are not saved, I just give you this moment to talk to God Almighty and ask for the forgiveness of your sins and make a commitment to repent. After we've walked with God for years, just like a marriage, sometimes you can become not appreciative of your partner, disrespectful, and too familiar. And Lord, this morning, we want to say thank you for salvation. Thank you that we repented and you saved us. Thank you for the cross and for dying for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And God, to be good evangelists, we need to lead repentant lifestyles. And with my brothers and sisters here, we ask you to grace us. God's scripture says repentance is a gift. It's a gift of God. And I ask you to place that gift on us, God. Pour it out in this place, God. The great gift of repentance. For we here who are saved, for us, God, for us who call ourselves Christians, we're asking for a fresh impartation of repentance, of the great gift of repentance from all wrongdoing. God, for those here who are not yet born again, welcome into the kingdom as, as you repent also together with us maybe for the first time welcome to the kingdom of god let him embrace you let him take the weight of your sin also hallelujah one last thing i want to ask if you prayed that prayer this morning particularly maybe for the first time in your life very important that you come and talk about it don't leave just hiding that prayer in your heart okay please come and talk to me at the end of this meeting I just want to walk you through what happens next and how you can secure your salvation amen let's stand